Hey guys, welcome to the Fellowship Greenville Students Podcast. This week, Matt Densky continues our series, Splinters of Doubt, and talks about personal pain and doubts that can stem from that. We look at Matthew 11, verses 1 through 6, where John the Baptist is in prison, and the personal pain he experiences brings doubt about Jesus. He struggles to believe God is still who he thought he was, and we can go down this path in our minds too, throughout painful circumstances. Matt reminds us that Jesus loves the doubter, he invites the questions, and he provides answers. We hope you enjoy this message. Guys, welcome tonight. We're so glad you're here. My name is Matt Densky, student ministry pastor, and I, man, I'm just overjoyed to see you. Two reminders. One is you are loved. Two is you belong here. And uh, it doesn't matter what baggage you came in with tonight. It doesn't matter what you walked through the door with. It's not dependent on even what you believe or where you're at in your spirituality. You are loved and you belong we believe that. We believe God believes that about you. And, uh, and, and hopefully I, you know it by now, but if you don't, you'll find out pretty quick. We, we're all about Jesus here. He, he's the center of it all. We believe he's the source of life and hope in this world. And so we talk about him a lot, but we are glad you're here. And we've been in this series over the past few weeks called Splinters of Doubt. Looks very ominous. I think Nathan Sheehan, didn't you pose for this? This is a picture of you. Yeah, man, you shaved your head just for this photo. Grew it back real quick, but yeah, Splinters of Doubt. <laughs> That's a joke, people. Splinters of Doubt, uh, this is the series we've been in for a couple of weeks now. And the, the main idea is this, like we, we know how to deal with physical splinters, you know? You touch a piece of wood, you get a splinter, it's like, oh man, that hurts. If I don't get it out soon, it'll fester, it'll get sensitive, you know, it'll get irritated, it, it'll start to affect everything. Something bumps into it and it hurts or whatever. Get a needle, get tweezers, get it out. But the question we posed in the beginning of the series is, what do you do with the mental splinters? Those thoughts that just kind of find their way in and plant themselves in our heads and in our brains. Those questions that just get in there. How, how do you deal with mental splinters? How do you get those out? How do you, how do you process through those and work through those? So we've been in this series for a few weeks and tonight we're gonna continue that series. Uh, I have some <clears throat> very close friends, uh, my wife and I, we have these very close friends. We've known them for a long time, and uh, they're married uh, to each other. It's a couple we know, and they grew up um, in the church. They're, they're very familiar with Jesus. They both believed in Jesus at a very young age, so it's, it's like been their life for a long time, all the way through some grade school years and middle school and high school. They've walked with Jesus. They love Jesus. They're raising their family around Jesus and his message and who he is. They love God. They love Jesus. Um, We've known for a long time. We admire them. We think so highly of them. They're awesome. But recently, they've started to experience some difficulties and some hardships and some pain. And they're going through a few things. And the, 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 the pressing in of that pain and and some of the sorrow they're experiencing and some of the challenges that they're walking through together is is tough. And it's it's tested some of their resolve, as pain often does. And they've kind of confided in my wife and I, like, this is their statement. I am struggling to believe that God is still good. That's their statement. Because they were processing some of what they're going through. So these are like lifelong believers. 
they're in love with Jesus. They're raising their family around Jesus. Like this, they're, they're not cultural believers. Like, yeah, we go to church because that's what you're supposed to do. And you check off the box and it's a ritual. And it's like, that's what, no, they're like, this is authentic. They are passionately and intimately in love with Jesus. And they know, they know the shepherd. They know his voice. But they're going through something right now to such a great degree and such a depth of pain and sorrow that as they're processing, they're being confronted with this reality. I'm struggling to believe that God is still good. In other words, what I once believed about God, I'm wrestling with that. I don't know if I still believe that about God. Like, I think he is somewhere in the back of my mind. I, I, I guess I know he is, but man, if you, were, if you were to ask me right now, I'm just struggling to believe that God is still good. If you were to ask me right now, is God good? I, I, no, but I know he is. Yes, I'm wrestling with that truth. That's where they're at. And I don't know if you've ever been there. I don't know if that strikes a nerve. I don't know if that resonates with you. But it might one day, because the older you get, the more of the weight of pain you're going to start carrying. There are going to be factors and things that happen in your life, some of them, most of them, uncontrollable. You never even saw them coming, unpredictable. And you're going to start to deal with them and carry them. And you're going to be face to face with the resolve of your faith. And do I still believe that God is good in the midst of my pain? And so the splinter of doubt that we're talking about tonight is, is personal pain. Personal pain, this experience of pain. I'm going through something, I'm experiencing something, I, I, something's going on in my life right now, and it has got me wrestling with what I once believed about God. And tonight I wanna look at um, a guy in, this, in the New Testament. It's actually who we looked at last week. Anybody remember? Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> Who said Jesus? Yeah. Hey, you're actually right. We looked at Jesus last week. So, yeah, man, you're absolutely right. We looked at someone else, too. Anyone remember? Someone shouted it out. Who? What? Yeah, Jason. John. Yeah, John. His cousin, John, also known as John the Baptist. John, I don't have, I'd, I'd give you all some, like, something, man. I, I got nothing. Just respect, dog. Respect. John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. So he, he was this dude. He lived out in the wilderness. He was a wild man. Mangy dude, like probably some dreadlocks, thick old beard going on, like dude looking ragged out there, dressed in camel fur, eating bugs and honey. That is that, is that dude. He's a prophet of God and he's preaching against the sins of the religious leaders, of the political leaders, He's preaching, and people are coming out to John the Baptist to be baptized by him in the Jordan River. We're actually going to look at John the Baptizer again this week. Uh, and so I want to start, uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 11 tonight, but I'm going to jump real quick over to John chapter 1. John's Gospel chapter 1. Different John. This is not John the Baptizer writing. This is a different John, but he's writing about John the Baptizer. So this is a summary of, of John the Baptist, and he sees his cousin Jesus walking towards him, and he has this divine revelation, and this is his description of Jesus. John chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 29. John says this, The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him. And he said, behold, that's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now you've got to understand what John 
is referencing here, John the baptizer, he's referencing an Old Testament imagery. In the Old Testament, there was a ceremony that would happen once a year, every year. And it was the Hebrew Day of Atonement. It was called Yom Kippur. Say that with me, one, two, three. Yom Kippur. Way to go, you just learned Hebrew. That means Day of Atonement. And on the Day of Atonement, this once a year ceremony for the Hebrew people, the high priest of the Hebrew people, hundreds and thousands of people, the high priest would take two perfect lambs. They were perfect in their genetics. No spots, no blemishes, no mess ups, no nothing. They would take two. And over one lamb, he would pray this symbolic prayer on behalf of the sins of the people. He would pray over the lamb, the sins of the people. All the sins that we've all committed, we're praying like this lamb is representing all those things. And then he would take the lamb and, sorry lamb, you did. Like he would take the lamb, sacrifice the lamb. And he would take the blood of that lamb and he would sprinkle it on the Ark of the Covenant. This lamb symbolized by the blood, the shedding blood of the lamb, our sin is dealt with. Our sin is dealt with. The shed blood of the lamb, of the perfect lamb, and our sin is dealt with. And then over here, he would pray over this lamb. Remember, there's two. A once a year ceremony, big deal, Yom Kippur. He'd pray over this lamb. All the sins of the people, all the sins we've committed throughout this year, we pray symbolically over this lamb, and then he would take this lamb. And he didn't sacrifice it. You guys are sick, man. You're waiting for it. He's like, yeah, draw the knife, man. No, he didn't sacrifice it. He brought it out to a desolate place out in the wilderness, and they set it free. <laughs> Bye, lamb. He set it free. Now, more than likely, he was going to die out there because it's on its own. It's away from everyone and its, its flock and things like that. So, <laughs> poor lamb. But, but that one symbolized the sins of the people have been removed from us, taken far away from us, separated from the camp. Two lambs. One was sacrificed, and its shed blood symbolized the shedding of its blood has dealt with our sin. And the other one set free very, very far away out in the wilderness, symbolizing this imagery, our sins have been taken from us. They're far from us. This ceremony had to be repeated every single year, every single year, every single year. And the author of Hebrews says this actually served as a reminder of the fact that we are such sinners. It wasn't meant to be the end-all ceremony. It was meant to point us ahead. One day, though, one day there's going to be a lamb who comes not like these lambs, which have to be killed year after year after year. One day a lamb will come who will finally and once and for all deal with our sin and finally and once and for all take away our sins. And it will be voluntary and vicarious. And when that lamb comes, it will never need to be repeated again. We won't have a once a year ceremony. It will be a one time only, fully efficacious for all time through his blood deal. Amen. And it's the only time in history that the offering was the offerer. Jesus put himself on the cross, surrendered himself to Roman guards. John the baptizer looks in the distance and sees Jesus coming and says, Behold the lamb, the spotless lamb, Leviticus 16 reference, the lamb of God. He's going to take away our sins. That's who John's looking at. 
Behold the lamb, he takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. In other words, even though I'm half a year older than him physically, he's always existed before me because he's eternal. He's lived forever. This is God in the flesh. I myself didn't know him. I didn't realize who he was, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness and said, I saw the spirit of heaven descend like a dove and it remained on him. I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize God, in other words, who sent me to baptize with water, said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I've seen and I've borne witness that this is the Son of God. So this one phrase, John the Baptist is looking at Jesus. He says, this is the symbolic lamb. This is the perfect lamb, the spotless lamb. He's gonna take away our sins. He's gonna forgive our sins. He's eternal. This is God in the flesh. This is the son of God. These are the direct declarations of John the baptizer about Jesus. Now, John the baptizer was a fiery prophet and he called out sin. And one day he decided to call out a king's sin. And that typically, historically, hasn't gone well for people. And he looks at the king. His name is Herod Antipas. He looks at Herod and he calls out his sin. Herod stole his brother's wife because he wanted her for himself. It's not a good brother, by the way. He stole his brother's wife John the baptizer calls it out. Herod decides, wrong dude, you mess with the wrong dude. And he throws him in jail to rot, to die. And this new wife is calling for John the Baptist's head. Literally, I want his head on a platter. Sicko, man. Dude, you're into some weird chicks, bro. (laughs) Like, and the king's in this hard place of like, I I didn't want to like kill him. I just wanted to throw him in prison. But he's got this, this new girl putting all this pressure on him. And John the Baptist is in prison. He's rotting. He's alone in this dungeon of Herod's. And he's beginning to wrestle with some things. He's beginning to question some things. So now let's go back. Matthew chapter 11. Starting in verse 1. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples. He went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. And when John, his cousin, John the Baptist, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ or about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent word by his own disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? So get it. What we just read is is after the fact of what we already read in John chapter one. John chapter one, John the Baptist, Jesus, his cousin, is declared, this is the lamb, he's here to take away sin, there he is, he's spotless, he's perfect, he's the sacrifice, he's the forgiver, he's eternal, it's God's son. All these declarations. But now he's in prison and he's alone and he's tired 
and he's hurting and he's suffering and he's got a lot of time to be alone with his thoughts and it's dark and it's cold and it's damp and it's dripping and he's got rats for company probably and he's sitting down there in this dungeon all alone behind bars and he's beginning to wonder some things. Man, like what's going on? Where's my cousin? Where's Jesus? Man, how come he hasn't come and like busted me out? How come he hasn't overthrown Herod yet? Like Jesus is here to set up the throne of Israel, right? Like when is that gonna happen? When is he gonna overthrow Rome? When am I gonna get out of here? So apparently somehow maybe John was allowed some visitations or something because he's hearing about what Jesus is doing. He hears about the deeds of Jesus even though he's in prison. And so he sends his disciples, John's disciples, he sends them and he says, guys, would you please go to my cousin? And I want you to ask him this question, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Like John, how can you ask that question? And where is that question coming from? What happened to John the Baptist by the Jordan River? There's God in the flesh! And now John is experiencing personal pain and suffering and loneliness and darkness and death is impending. It's right around the corner. This is no like possibility. Maybe it'll happen. I don't know. It's kind of a risk. Nope. You are dead, man. You know you're dead. Any day Herod is going to kill you. And he's face to face with his own mortality. He's face to face with his own suffering. He's face to face with his proclamations about Jesus. Like, did I get that right? Like, The revelation hit me when I saw him and I declared who it was, but now I don't know. I'm struggling to believe that God is still who he said he is. I'm struggling to believe that that God is still who I thought he was. This is Jesus' cousin. This is childhood bro. They grew up together. John had the revelation when he saw him. That's him, that's the Messiah. This is who we should follow, this is our hope. And now in the face of personal pain and suffering, guys, would you go ask Jesus if he really is Messiah or should we just keep waiting? You ever been there? Where your declarations about Jesus, maybe at Epic, or some retreat moment when everything seems so crystal clear and you're like hype and you're like, oh, yeah, I worship, and it's all great. And like, Jesus is king. A few months go by and some stuff starts happening in your life. And you're like, Jesus, where are you? What is this stuff? How come you're not helping me? Where are you at? You ever been there? That's where John is right now. He sends his own disciples to ask Man, guys, can you just, I'm not sure Jesus is who I thought he was. What? (laughs) Bro, you called him God. You called him the forgiver. You called him the lamb. You called him God's son. You called him eternal. What are you talking about? I know, man, but I've just got so much time to wrestle with my thoughts, and I'm lonely, and it's dark, and I'm scared, man. I'm hurting. This is not how I thought it was going to be. You ever been there? Because John's there. This is like my wife and I's friends going through some 
deeply difficult things right now. I'm struggling to believe that God is still good. I used to think it, but now I'm just doubting, man. John's there. The cousin of Jesus, the declarer of who Jesus is, the anointed one to pave the way from Messiah and understanding his purpose. He knows who he is. He knows what he was doing for Messiah. But in the face of death, in the face of pain, in the face of loneliness, in the face of prison and suffering, he's questioning. Guys, can you just go and ask him, is it really him? See, John thought Jesus was going to do things a little bit differently. In John's mind, Jesus was going to was going to go about things differently. His ministry was going to look different. Some of his preaching was going to look different. John had interpreted some Old Testament passages a certain way, and he was waiting on Jesus, literally, to lead this insurrection and overthrow Caesar and Rome and reinstate Israel as a theocracy with Jesus seated on a physical throne in Jerusalem. He's waiting on that. Jesus didn't come as conquering king. He came as suffering servant. And John is not getting that. He's like trying to comprehend it and he's waiting on Jesus to lead this, this overthrow and not, it's not happening. Guys, can you just go ask, is this the one who we're waiting on? Or is it someone else? He's doubting, he's doubting. Of all people you would think would never doubt, I would think it'd be John and he's doubting. Unfulfilled expectations plus emotional and physical stress multiplied by pain equals doubting who Jesus is. If you find yourself in seasons of doubt, you're like, man, what is happening? Where is this coming from? This is not like the, this is not like the exhaustive way to think about it, but usually these components are present. Unfulfilled expectations about Jesus plus emotional and physical stress factors multiplied by pain, usually results in doubting who Jesus is. Our resolve gets tested. So the disciples of John go to Jesus, and they ask him that question, are you really him, man? Our cousin's suffering and rotting in prison. He's going to get killed any day. Are you really him? And Jesus graciously and patiently and I think gently answers them. Verse four, go and tell John what you see and what you hear. And so maybe Jesus invited them to, hey guys, why don't you spend a week with me or spend a few days with me, observe me for a few days or something like that. Or maybe Jesus was just pointing to the rumors about him and the news about him, but he says, go and tell John what you see and what you hear. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So John the baptizer is steeped in Old Testament literature. He's a prophet of God. He understands the Old Testament. He would have certainly understood the, the scroll of Isaiah, and Jesus tells John's disciples, he's questioning who I am. That's okay. I want you to tell him what you see and what you hear that I've done. And he starts to go off this list. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear. 
The dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. These are quotations from Isaiah, which John the Baptist would have certainly recognized about the Messiah. Their prophecies, their predictions about what Messiah will do when he comes. Jesus hears that John is questioning his identity and he points him back to the word of God about prophecies about the Messiah, which John would have been very familiar with. This is Isaiah chapter 35, verse five. Let's look at that one real quick. Isaiah 35, 5 says, the eyes of the blind shall be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. This is what Messiah will do. And then Isaiah 61, 1, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. That's how Jesus ends this. I have preached good news to the poor. But look at what else is in John, uh, Isaiah 61. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. You notice how Jesus didn't quote that in his thing. John is in prison right now, wondering if Jesus is really Messiah. Jesus embraces the question. He's able to handle the doubts even from his own cousin who declared him God and eternal and the lamb. He's able to handle that. And he tells John's disciples, why don't you tell him this? The eyes of the blind are open. The deaf are being healed. I'm raising the dead. I'm cleansing the lepers. And I'm bringing good news to the poor. John, would have, uh, John the Baptist would have known. That's Isaiah 61. He would have known how this passage ends. The opening of prison to those who are bound. But Jesus does not quote that part of the verse. And I think this is so intentional. I think Jesus is saying to John without saying to John, I am the Messiah, but I'm not always who you expect me to be. And if part of the condition in your mind of me being Messiah is that I'm somehow gonna free you from this prison, I'm not. And guys, I I wanna let you know, as someone who's just a little bit further down the road than you in life, you will go through pain. Life will throw some nasty stuff your way. Loss of a loved one. Circumstances changing beyond your control. Diseases ravaging your body. All these unpredictable and unexpected things that happen every day to people. And we begin to question who God is. And sometimes we even put conditions on it. God, if you are really good, then you'll get me out of this prison. Jesus, if you are really Messiah, then you'll get me out of this prison. And it's not that he doesn't ever do that. In fact, Peter was in prison later and an angel came and just like busted him out. It's not that he doesn't ever operate like that or heal someone miraculously or cleanse their body of cancer or things like that. But sometimes that's just not in the will of God. And Jesus, I think, graciously doesn't quote the last part of Isaiah 61 because he does not want to get John's hopes up. I think he's telling John, John, I am Messiah, buddy. It's okay that you're doubting. I get it. I am who you think I am or who you thought I was. But this right here is the end of your days. There's no escape from this prison for you. And somehow John has to wrap his mind around the realities that Jesus is still God, that Jesus is still good, and that I still have to embrace this pain and prison that I'm in. The presence of pain is not the absence of Christ. 
It doesn't disqualify Jesus for who he is. It doesn't somehow make him less good or less loving. In fact, John chapter 11, Jesus' best friend Lazarus dies. Lazarus has two sisters, Mary and Martha. They're heartbroken. Like, Jesus, why weren't you here? You could have done something about this, not knowing he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. But the Bible says that because Jesus loved them, he actually didn't go to them. The most loving thing God can do for us is to allow us to experience the most of him. And that's often happened in pain and not comfort. And I know that's a hard pill to swallow. The presence of pain is not the absence of Jesus. Jesus does not promise John, I'll free you from prison. But what he does give him is clarity. I am the one. I am the Messiah. I am the hope. There's life after this. There's hope beyond these walls. Verse 7, they went away. Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning his cousin John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? No. Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to the wilderness to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I'll send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Look at verse 11. Truly, truly, I say to you, among those born of women, which is basically everybody, (laughs) among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Wow. Talk about a compliment. Among anybody who's ever been born of women, none has been greater than John the Baptist. And this is on the, this is on the, 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 the dovetails of John questioning who Jesus is. Man, sometimes in our lives we get so worked up about doubts. Man, I can't communicate my doubts. I can't voice my doubts. I can't speak them out loud. God's going to be disappointed. Someone will be disappointed. You're not allowed to have questions. You can't vocalize that. You can't ask that. And so we suppress those things, and we don't communicate them, and we don't even pray them, and, and, and we just don't take them to God. We don't take them to others. We internalize, and they stay splinters within our minds. But Jesus here is face-to-face with his cousin who is doubting who he is. Are you really the one? Are you really the Messiah? I thought you were, man, but now I'm not sure. Jesus affirms his identity to John, and then he turns around to the crowds, and he says, that guy, John, there's never been anyone greater than him, ever. Your doubts do not disqualify you from God's love. Your doubts do not disqualify you from God's acceptance and approval. John is doubting who Jesus is. Jesus turns around and says, that guy, he's so great. I love that guy. No one's better than that guy. Doubts do not disqualify you from God's love and God's approval and God's acceptance. Somehow we've shamed the idea of doubts. You can't doubt, you can't ask questions. What are you doing? Don't say that, don't think that. See, doubting is, I'm wrestling with this. I'm having a hard time believing this. 
It's what, it's what my, wife, my wife and I's friends vocalized. I am struggling to believe that God is still good. Listen to their words. They didn't say, I don't believe it anymore. I don't believe God is good. They said, I'm struggling to believe. I'm wrestling with the truth that God is good. Doubting is, I'm having a hard time believing that. Doubting is, I can't believe that. Unbelief is, I won't believe that. I don't believe that. Two very different things. Doubts do not disqualify you. Doubts are not inherently evil. Allowing a doubt to become the dead end, that's the problem. When you start to doubt and you're just like, ah, I'm not gonna pursue the answer, I'm not gonna pursue truth, this is it. I'm just gonna splinter it and let it fester and wrestle with it, it's a dead end. No, vocalize it, take it to Jesus, he can handle it, it's okay. Jesus elevates John, his cousin, even after his doubts. Three things I want you to know tonight. Number one is this, Jesus loves the doubter. If you're experiencing personal pain and you are wrestling in your faith, and somehow the fact that you're wrestling in your faith leads you to wrestle with your faith even more, like somehow because you're wrestling with your faith, you're wrestling with the love of God, he can't love me if I'm wrestling with him, I have to have clarity on everything and certainty on all things, and it's like, no, dude. The opposite of faith is not certainty. Faith, faith allows room for doubts. Faith and doubt go in partnership. Allowing doubts to become dead ends, that's, that's when it becomes dangerous. Jesus loves the doubter. John the Baptist had doubts. His cousin, his, who declared, this is God in the flesh, this is the lamb, he takes away sins, he forgives the world, this is him. Everybody, you should follow him. You should place your trust in him and your hope in him. And now I'm experiencing pain and I'm wondering, is it really him? Is this really the guy? He's not doing it like I thought he would do it. It doesn't look how I thought it would look. I'm suffering over here, man. Don't you care? Jesus says, that guy, he's the best. I love that guy. Among all those born of women, there's never been anyone greater than that guy. Look at him. Jesus loves the doubter. Doubting has nothing to do with the love of God for you. It doesn't affect it, doesn't disqualify you. Jesus loves the doubter. Second thing I want you to know is this, Jesus invites the questions. Nowhere in this passage do you see Jesus say, ah, John, come on, man. I thought we were past this. We're cousins. Nowhere in this passage do you see Jesus, how can you say, John, it's me. <laughs> Nowhere. John, are you serious? You're gonna think that? Man, I thought you had a stronger faith than that. Nowhere does Jesus shame John, belittle John, dismiss his questions, condemn his doubts, nowhere. In fact, there's doubters all over the Bible. Probably the most famous is the Apostle Thomas. If I don't stick my fingers in the hands of Jesus and my hand in his side, I won't believe he's back from the dead. Jesus comes in the room. Here's my scars. <laughs> but he doesn't shame Thomas. He doesn't shame us for our doubts. He invites the questions. Oh, you're wrestling? Okay. Okay. Let me walk with you while you wrestle. He welcomes. He invites. He does not belittle. He does not condemn. He does not shame when we doubt. Third, Jesus provides 
answers. Now, you have to understand, it is not always going to be the answer we want. John sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you really the Messiah? Probably just wanting a simple yes or no. (laughs) Jesus is like, tell them what you've seen and heard. I've healed the blind, healed the deaf, healed the lepers, dead or back, good news to the poor. I mean, he's forcing John to marinate and and reflect upon what John already knows, which is scripture. Basically, Jesus is like, John, I'm going to give you some clues here, and you're going to have to connect the dots. But John's like, dude, I don't want, man, I don't want some connected dot riddle. Did you just tell me yes or no, Jesus? Would you just answer my prayer, man? Would you just give me the answer? Well, Jesus gave the answer. It's just not always how we want. Sometimes we're praying and praying and praying. Jesus, are you really who you say you are? Jesus, would you get me out of this prison? Jesus, would you remove this pain? Jesus, would you change my life? Jesus, would you get me out of this Jesus welcomes all those questions, does not condemn any of that. And I believe he gives answers. It's just not always the answers we want. By giving answers, I don't mean grant requests. I mean he gives answers. And sometimes it's a no. Sometimes he leaves us in the pain so that we seek him more. Sometimes he leaves us in it so that we have a greater understanding of who he is. to remind us that ultimately our greatest healing is not in this life but the next. Our ultimate dependency is not in our safety and comfort but upon Him. Jesus gives us the answers. points us to truth. Don't allow your doubts to become the dead end. Wrestle with them. Take them to Jesus. Ask the questions. Ask the really hard questions so that you're pursuing the truth amidst the doubts. As I was reflecting on this passage, I'm blown away because John the Baptist to me is like the one dude who you would assume would be immune to doubting. You were born six months ahead of Jesus. You grew up with him. You went to all the family reunions. (laughs) Like you tried to go swimming with him one time and he just kind of like was on the pool's surface. Like he didn't sing. Yeah, that's curious. Like you saw the dude in his childhood. You've grown up with him. You've understood your purpose to pave the way for Messiah. You had the revelation about who he was. This is the lamb. This is God. This is God in the flesh, the son of God. Believe in him, the hope of the world, forgiver of sins. You knew who he was. You would think of all people, John would be the one who even in the face of death would be like, Jesus, still good. He's still good. He's still who he says he is. And John is wrestling. He is doubting. He is questioning. Just like my friends, I'm struggling to believe that Jesus is who I thought he was. A very, very simple prayer to help us in the midst of our doubts is this. Jesus, would you help me in my unbelief? That simple. Do you believe? Yeah, I believe, but I also have doubts. (laughs) Simple prayer, Jesus, would you help me in my unbelief? Not take it away, because we've got to wrestle with this stuff. Not just magically fix it and give me all the answers, because we've got to wrestle with this stuff. But would you help me in my unbelief? Would you help me pursue the truth so that my doubts don't become dead ends and fester as splinters in my mind? Jesus loves the doubter. He invites the questions, and he gives the answers. 
Let's take our doubts to Jesus and allow the Prince of Peace to comfort us even in the midst of our pain. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your word. Thank you, uh, man, for this story. Your cousin, who just days after this would be killed by King Herod. All the dark thoughts he was wrestling with in that prison cell, his vulnerability, his authenticity. Jesus, we thank you that his story is included in your word and that it doesn't disqualify him as a a hero of our faith, that it actually helps us understand the humanness that that we're confronted with, that pain is oftentimes a trigger for our resolve and that we gotta wrestle with that stuff. Jesus, please help us bring this to you and ask the questions and and navigate the, the darkness and try to figure this out. Please give us the courage so that we don't internalize it and allow it to splinter in our minds and lead us away and astray to, to dead ends. But help, it, help, help us allow the doubts to bring us closer to you. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace and for not condemning us in the midst of our questions pray over this room of students, maybe some of us doubting tonight because of painful circumstances. Remind us of your grace and truth and beauty and love and comfort. We love you, Jesus. Amen.